want to uh, ensure that you have one of these before. This is going to be like a, a longer sermon, so you just need sustenance. You're allowed to eat it, and if you, for any reason, you don't want to eat it, um, or indeed you don't choose to eat it, you can, I, I want you to take one, that's the important thing. Just one, Frank, yes. Just one. Uh, but I do want you to have it, but you're very free to eat it. Um, for reasons that will become apparent later. <laughs> it was in the unit. <laughs> I found a dog in there as well, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, do you want to take a seat, Anne? And um, the rest of you, would you like to find a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 4? Between now and Easter, we are looking at uh, references, direct references to faith in Mark's gospel. The moments where Jesus challenges disciples about their faith or finds tricky situations where there isn't any faith or warns people through faith or finds people who have remarkable faith, sort of determined faith. Fighting faith. And last week, we, uh, our all age service, we were looking at the story of the friends who tore the roof off to let their paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. And we asked questions, well, what, because what the, the story said was Jesus saw their faith and he healed and forgave the man. And we were asking the question of what does faith look like when you're doing it for friends? And it's in that context that we're still looking at verse 35 of Mark 4. Mark 4. You can eat it, Amanda. That's absolutely fine. I'm just a little alarmed that it's not moving through. Okay. That day, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind... They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is a well-known passage for many of you if you've been in church any time at all. And uh, many of you will have heard many sermons. You've heard me preach about this before. But you'll have heard many sermons about it. And you kind of will almost inevitably imagine where I'm going to land this. The, 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 sort of the general way we would preach this is that your life is the boat, the storm, or the things that go wrong in your life. And the reality is that Jesus is with you in that boat. And that's true. 
That's absolutely true. But there's a danger with it. There's a danger that we reduce the story down. We make it so Jesus is just sort of like a very good friend who gets alongside you when things are going rough. But actually, I think what Mark's doing here is something much bigger and much more outrageous. And just for a few moments, I want you to catch with me some of the outrageous statements that Mark is involved with here to people who would be disciples. Of all the four Gospels, most people would suggest that Mark's Gospel is the Gospel for disciples. It's the time, Mark's Gospel is a Gospel that actually doesn't show the disciples in a particularly good light. They're normally rubbish. They normally get stuff wrong. They're normally in the wrong place. They're normally with the wrong answer. They're normally making a mess of things. And if there's one gospel that's written for people who want to be disciples, most think it's actually Mark's gospel. This story became really quite important for the early church. There's, uh, this is a, a little carving that was taken out of a wall in a catacomb. The catacombs were like the, the sort of the crypts. It's where bodies were buried. And when the church was under persecution, it was one of the very few places that Christians could worship together. So they went into these catacombs, these dark, forbidding places to worship, because actually to worship in public was dangerous. And in these catacomb-like places, they would, uh, they would sketch things on the walls, kind of to remind themselves of stories and to remind themselves of truth. And this is one of them. And a bit more intricate than just a, a sort of a scratch on a wall. But it's the idea that Jesus is in that boat. Jesus at the, at the fore there and the disciples who are straining with their oars. This is around 300. Just before the persecution against Christians stops. To be a Christian in these days when this is created is actually means that you are likely to lose everything you have. Not only that you're unpopular, but by this stage in the Roman Empire, you're in a dangerous place. Simply worshipping brings danger. And so they reminded themselves, actually, that Jesus is in this storm. And the storm is not just one of my life's not going great at the moment. The storm is actually going to engulf us. We are likely to be overwhelmed by the consequence of the persecution. And... The big question for persecuted Christians today, today is, has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten us? But it's easy to rush this story. This is a boat. This is a boat that was found in the Sea of Galilee. This is a boat that is dated between 50 BC and 50 AD. This is a boat that um, was, uh, was sort of repaired over and over again. And in the end, they just let it sink in the Sea of Galilee. And what happened was, it just sank into the mud. And because it sank into the mud, it preserved. And then during a drought, as things dried out, they found this boat. It's called, they sort of nicknamed it, the Jesus boat, for obvious reasons. This is a boat like the boat that Jesus would have been in on this day. The reason I tell you all that is because I want to remind you this is a story about a real boat. It's not a psychological story about Jesus is just with us when it's rough. This is a real boat in a real sea 
And it would have looked something like that. And if you go uh, to the museum where that boat is, you can, I, I was going to say you can touch it. You probably can't. But you could get close enough to be within touching reach of it. You could smell it. You could get a sense of this is what first century AD 30 boats looked like. It's in the right place at the right time. There's some times, aren't there, where for those of us who've read the Gospels the longest, it's easy to forget this involved real people with real boats, with real water. And it was a real storm. And we don't need reminding of what real storms look like this winter, do we? That's uh, Port Levin in Cornwall. A real storm. The Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, was well known for its storms because of the way the geography worked. It was, they were often uh, violent and they were unexpected. They would come within a flash. And suddenly, however uh, experienced you were as a sailor, and remember that these blokes who were in the boat are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. This is where their work is. Wherever you spend most of your time, wherever you spend most of your time, you kind of get used to the things that you have to deal with. Fishermen on the Sea of Galilee know about storms. Storms don't frighten fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. It's their working life. But this one did. It's like if we talk about storms in general, storms can be like... You know, it's just a lot of wind and a lot of rain. But if you stand in a storm like that, you go, this is a storm that's actually very frightening. We can mentally understand what a storm is, but that sort of storm this winter has been terrifying for people. That's a storm that rips away cliffs. That's a storm that destroys things. That's the power of a storm. And when Mark tells you about the storm... A furious squall, the waves breaking over the boat, so that the boat was nearly swamped. You're supposed to understand, this is not something like for me and you, we, you know, people like who, who are not sailors, you know, like we, we get frightened if it's just a little bit of a bubble. But this is something that frightens people who are there every day. It is that furious. This is their world. And it's got all the elements of eyewitness. Do you notice when we read? There's kind of like this, these things that feel like eyewitness reports. That day when evening came. Leaving the crowd behind, they took Jesus along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. These are sort of like these little bits of detail. They feel like someone who's not trying just to give you a parable, but actually it's like the memory of, do you remember what it was really like? He was on a cushion. You don't need to, the cushion is of no significance. But it's like, it feels like I was there. I remember what it was like. And Peter, who tradition says, and good tradition says, relayed this gospel. It's Peter's, memory 
This is what it was like. This is the world. This is the workplace. And Jesus stilled the storm. Look how, what happened. Jesus, who's woken up by the disciples saying, don't you care? Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves. That's strange, isn't it? It's strange. It's like that thing of, you know, the wind's out there and you speak to the wind. It's not even like you say to God, your father, God, could you calm this down a little? You actually speak to the wind. And I don't know, but you've got to imagine this and feel it. The force of the squall. Jesus is standing in a boat that's tipping all over, shouting at the wind, saying, wind, stop. And saying to the waves, crashing over, enough. This is strange behaviour. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. And Mark knows and disciples know and you know that that's not normal. You know that that sort of thing doesn't happen. Try it. It doesn't happen. That's what happens. That's normal. It doesn't happen. And yet it did. It's kind of interesting. If you see where Mark has placed this story, look at what happens in the next chapter. You have a long story. I've not got time to go into now. But you have a long story about a man whose life has been so torn apart by evil spirits that is completely isolated, he's living amongst the tombs, no one can keep him bound, and he's howling on the hillside night and day. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus gets out of that man, takes out of that man all those things that ripped him apart. And in a really strange story, they go into pigs. And the pigs are flying. Strange story. The pigs go off the edge of the cliff. And then the next story, a synagogue ruler comes and goes, my daughter, who's 12 years old, has died. Will you come, Jesus? And as he's going, another woman comes, an older woman, who said, I've been suffering with hemorrhaging for 12 years. And she just reaches to Jesus and Jesus heals her. And then he goes to see Jairus' daughter, and Jairus' daughter is brought back to life. I think what Mark wants us to do is, when we read this together, we're supposed to be asking some questions of, what's Jesus up to? What's he actually doing? Now, I've got a slide next that, in one sense, I, I really don't like, and in another sense, I think it clarifies what the passage is doing. So you've got to, if you, if you feel uneasy about this, then share my uneasiness. But if it works for you, then that's helpful. And it's kind of like this. I think that's what, in a nutshell, is happening in these chapters. 
Because what you've got are Jesus stilling the storm. Now for early first century people, the particular fear they had was the sea was a place of, of a, uh, sort of um, evil. It was a place that you couldn't control. It was a place you were frightened of. But Jesus stills the storm. You have a story of a man whose life is ripped apart so massively and Jesus deals with the evil spirits. You have a girl who's dead. Well, you have an old woman who's hemorrhaging for 12 years who is as isolated as she can be and Jesus heals her and you have a girl who's dead and Jesus raises her to life. It's like everything that's disordered, Jesus deals with. Everything that illustrates the out of control nature of the world, Jesus can sort out. Sometimes when people are not Christians, they reject God because they go, if there was a God, why is there so much suffering? If there was a God, why is there so much disorder? If there was a God, why are things as they are? And they are right to ask the question, but they've got the wrong solution. Because the assumption is, if there was a God, there would never be any of this stuff. Actually, the Bible says there is this stuff, but God comes in. It's not like God's there and there's nothing and imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. We could all live in peace. It's actually, no, it's a nightmare, but God comes. God came to rescue the world. Listen to the disciples at the end of this little story. The disciples in verse 40 say, uh, Jesus says to him, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the disciples were terrified. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because what you've got is they've been in this massive, furious squall and they've been frightened. But now the storm is over. They're terrified. <laughs> it's kind of like before we were just frightened. But now we're terrified. We're terrified because... Who's this? Who's this? Who's with us? I've been reading and rereading some of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. Caleb's had a bad day. From the moment he came down the path, he didn't want to come to church, and he's just been crying all morning. I, we've all had days like that. Been rereading the books of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. They're children's books, of course, but what he's trying to do is trying to retell how does Christianity feel? And how does it feel if you see it from a different slant? And in one of the books, talking about Aslan, the figure of Jesus, the question by one of the children is, is he safe? Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And there's a sense in which Jesus in the boat, the, the reaction of the disciples is, is Jesus safe? No, he's not safe. That's why we're terrified. That's why we're terrified, because he's not safe. We couldn't control the storm, and we can't control Jesus. 
And it finishes like this. The disciples turning to one another and saying, who's this? And what Mark does in a very carefully constructed gospel, that's the central question of the whole gospel. Right smack bang in the middle of the gospel is Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And it's a question that Jesus asks of Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And at that point, the whole gospel turns because from that moment on, it's going to be a story about how Jesus is going to go to the cross and the resurrection. That's the turning point of this whole book. So the question, who do you think I am? Who's this? Who's Jesus? Is the crucial question that Mark's always wanting you to ask. And Peter, the guy who remembers Jesus in the boat, said, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the new king. You're the king with a kingdom. You're the king who calls followers like me and you. You're the king who wants us to be part of this new life. Final slide. So why did I give you some Mars bars? You're welcome. It was just so you get a sugar hit so you'd be awake for 20 minutes. This is why I gave you the fun size Mars bar. Because they're really small, aren't they? Because for, for some of you, it's like, that's just enough. <laughs> and then there's the rest of you. Who go, that is not enough. That is simply not enough. But for... <laughs> okay, I can see what's going to happen as a result of this sermon. You're going to forget anything else except the Mars bar. It's like doing a children's talk. <laughs> yeah, you can eat the whole 16. This is the thing. I was trying to think of how we settle for just enough. Just enough to give us a taste. Just enough to go, yeah, that's... And for some of you, that will be it. I've just had enough. I don't want any more. Uh, there are... I, I know that for some of you, this is very strange to believe, but there are some people... Um, who, having a proper size Marbar, will eat half of it and put the other half into a fridge. I know, it's just the world is a strange place. But there are some people who go, I just can't manage a whole one. Some of you need to become their friends. <laughs> but there's a sense in which for some of you, you go away going, no, I don't want, I, 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 if I'd have offered you a full Mars bar, some of you would have gone, no, I don't want to eat it now, I don't want a full one. But pretty much many of you will have said, but I can eat that much. And I think what Mark's doing here with why are you still, why are you so afraid? Do you not have faith? Is because some of us actually reduce Jesus down really small and go, I'll have, and I say this with reverence, the fun size version. Just enough. Just enough to give me a taste. Just enough to remind me what a full one tastes like. Just enough to take off the edge, but not enough so that it overwhelms me. Not enough, so that actually it makes a big enough difference. 
I kind of want Jesus, but I want him to be manageable. I want him to help me a little bit, but I don't want it to be so unsafe that he demands everything. I want Jesus to help me because I'm actually having a hard time in my own situation and I want him just to come along and help me. Maybe that's what you say. But actually, I don't want to be frightened by you. I don't want to be overwhelmed by you. I want to kind of control you. Can I just take a little bit? And Mark tells a story of disciples in a boat who find that Jesus can still storms, but they find they're more frightened of him after he's done the miracle than they were before. <coughs> who can deal with the evil in our world? Who can actually deal with it? We know that, and the older we get, it's not cynicism. I think it's reality that goes, actually, the politicians can't do it. And it's not us being cynical because it's not that we need better politicians. It's actually that the problem is more than a politician can deal with. It's not cynicism. It is actually reality. Evil is too big. The damage is too great. The fracture is too much. Sin is too pervasive. Who can change things? We heard from Pete. And I would advise you, if you know Pete at all, talk to him over coffee. Let him tell you the longer story. A man who, in this week, sent a number of us texts to say, God has put my life back together again. And that's what the text said. It cracked, it fractured but God put it back together again. Rob's story about being in prison and having 25, 30 young guys say, I want to follow Jesus. And there'll be some of us in the room going, it's easy in that context. But what if, what if they do? What if those Salford and Manchester families that they come from are transformed. What can stop the cycle? The fun-sized bar is not enough. It's real, but it's not enough. And I think that's why Mark said to disciples, do you still have no faith? And maybe it was because they just didn't realise who was in the boat with them. I don't really know what I'm praying when I pray this, but it's kind of like, God, can you terrify us a bit? Can you do stuff that makes us overawed and overwhelmed? Not just enough to get by. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for the times when we operate as though and we live as though we can somehow reduce you to our manageable proportions. 
Lord, we want to. We want to be so affected by you that we actually do encounter the fear of the Lord. The ancient wisdom people said it was the beginning of wisdom. Lord, I want to know you in a way that is not just me handling you, but somehow you overwhelming us. Father God, in our situations, in our furious squalls, may you do more than just reassure us. May you do work that actually overcomes and begins to repair the damage, the evil damage that many of us are aware of. Lord, those of us who are working in situations where we're dealing with situations that simply do not seem to change, Father God, may you do so much more. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, in our families, the family situations that never seem to change, that always seem to be going around the same circles, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in our families as it is in heaven. Father God, in our own lives, the things that we carry on circling, the same issues that we're always sort of preoccupied by, God, will you break in and may your kingdom come and may your will be done in our lives and through our lives as it is in heaven. Father God, would you do a new work amongst us? And Lord, if we hear your word today asking us, do you still have no faith? Lord, may we have a really better answer. Lord, thank you that you are the Messiah. You are the new king. You're the one who brings all things into newness. Thank you that you are the God who repairs lives and brings them back together. You're the God who young lives, who are at the rock bottom, take a punt on and they find that their lives change and their situations change for the rest of their lives. Lord God, would you do a work, I pray, amongst us and through us, in the name of Jesus.